Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Alex Joukowsky. Alex is Director of Data Services at Expertier. Alex, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. Great to be on the show. So why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into machine learning and data science. You come at it from uh, the business angle, which is kind of an interesting starting place, huh? Yeah, exactly. So um, I studied uh, economics, um, majored in finance and statistics in the beautiful city of Munich. And then uh, until 2014, I used to manage a data processing team at Expertier, um, which I'll tell you what the company does. And um, the data processing team was like a very large entity of the of the company. It's like the core team. It had about 100 people um, doing all kinds of stuff related to processing job data in 12 different markets, seven different languages. So quite a lot of complexity. And my role was to kind of manage the team, put a direction on it, uh, make sure that everything runs smooth and efficient, uh, that the quality is good. Um, to develop some new web-based uh, tool because our whole data processing stack was a Ruby on Rails application developed internally. And um, I kind of got into machine learning by chance. So um, back in 2014, uh, beginning of 2014, we had like a, we had like a local optimum of um, efficiency. So we had very high uh cost per job, which was like our internal KPI. And we were looking at options of how to um, drive this cost down. So pretty much all the operational um, projects that we could do to improve this were done. The techn- technologically speaking, the platform was very streamlined. So um, somehow someone came with the idea to use um, support vector machines to kind of assist uh, the classification process of the jobs, which is like the part that takes a lot of time. And uh, we had a very first implementation that uh, did not really uh, work out very well. It was not taken very well by the team. And then, um, um, but still kind of interesting results. So the management and I kind of said, okay, um, let's, um, let's look at what this machine learning thing can do. So uh, we did not have any uh, capacity internally, so no one was actually familiar with machine learning in the company. So we talked to a few external agencies uh, to kind of get competency um, from outside and help us to build uh, one of the first uh, prototypes that we that we used in the beginning. So more or less, uh, I really come from the business side and uh, I got into machine learning by chance, so to say. <laughs> It may help folks uh, contextualize some of what you described by digging into Expertier and and what the company does and what some of the the main problems that you've been tasked to solve there are. Yeah. All right. So um, Expertier is a closed uh, career platform for high paid professionals. Uh, which means that the jobs that are offered on this platform um, have a very high salary. So they start at above uh, 60,000 euros or about 100,000 US dollars in the US. And uh, it's a closed network where recruiters can contact candidates. 
And uh, the reason why Expertier has been so good at solving this uh, problem of offering jobs to candidates is um, because we have a very extensive job classification, right? So if you go on a typical job board today and you would search for a job, so let's say I would go to one of the large job boards and I would search for uh, a CEO position and everyone can do this experiment, um, I would most likely get all kinds of jobs that have a direct text match that has something to do with reporting to the CEO or uh, assistant to the CEO and maybe somewhere in the fifth or in the sixth um, result page I would get like a job that really matches. So that's kind of the problem uh, of traditional job search, the full text search. And Expertier solved this by adding a few additional um, layers on the search site. Um, so, for example, uh, we would have um, something called a career level, right, where um, we add, we would put jobs in different categories, like a job for someone who is out of university or um, a job that is for uh, someone who leads projects or for someone who uh, manages teams or manages uh, managers that manages teams and so on. So you would be able to use these filters and kind of dig really deep uh, into finding a job that is really interesting for you on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, if you set up your profile correctly, um, you would get suggestions that are very relevant for you. So Expertier has um, a very detailed job taxonomy, um, classification of jobs. So for example, the industries, we have about 630 industries. So if you're looking for a job in consulting or uh, in risk and restructuring consulting, we have it. It's there and we can offer it to you, right? So this is kind of the problem that the team was trying to solve. So putting jobs in these um, extensive categories, right? And are the jobs, the listings sourced from public postings or are they uh, sourced uh you know, privately proprietary uh, listings that can be, and the question is really, uh, you know, how much noise is in those listings or are they, you know, if you're sourcing them privately, are they cleaner than you might expect from just a, a crawled set of listings? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So back in, back when we started in 2014, everything was very clean because we had um, kind of automated this whole crawling process um, it was still not completely automatic, so people still had to trigger them, but the content of the job, so the, the job text was very clean. Uh, a little bit later, once we kind of started um, crawling on large scale, uh, another problem came where we would have uh, text that is not uh, related to the job. So back when we were building this first iteration of the solution, we had fairly clean job descriptions, I would say. You kind of had this point in the business where you, you know, things were going okay, but you needed to figure out a way to kind of make the next leap in productivity. And you came across machine learning as a, a possible opportunity. Like, uh, and you said it, it, it didn't necessarily work, but it was promising enough that you continued to invest in it. Like, what did you do then? What was the next step? Yeah, so the next step was, um, first First of all, of course, convinced management that uh, there is an opportunity there. 
So we came up with a very high, a very uh, motivational goal for the team. So we would like to like cut our cost by 50% and uh, at the same time increase the output <laughs> by uh, a factor of two, uh, the team, the team output. And um, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, because we didn't have any competency, we kind of talked to um, a few external agencies. Uh, we gave them data sets and uh, they were, so to say, in a competition of um, showing us who can do better. And one of the agencies uh, got quite all right results. So we said, okay, let's give it a go. I mean, the, the cost perspective was okay. So there was nothing to lose. And uh, we decided to start working with them. And what even gave you the confidence to to put that kind of an aggressive goal on the table after a, 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 an experiment that, you know, didn't necessarily prove out, um, you know, that you can do it? It sounds like it wasn't a foregone conclusion that you'd be successful when you threw that out on the table. Um, so this goal came mostly from our CEO. So I guess that from uh, his experience of being a business leader, he had to set very high goals to uh, motivate people uh, like me and the other people in the team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the initial results were not really satisfying, but they were still kind of interesting. So we saw that uh, the support vector machines, even though they only took the job title and a part of the text, kind of got a few of the functions of the jobs correctly. So um, we said, okay, you know, we need a, we need a large goal here. <clears throat> so it's either go big or go home. And um, I think from a purely psychological perspective, if you have such a huge goal, you know, you're not chasing the next 10%, uh, it's kind of more motivating. That, that's for me. And um, <clears throat> this is how I would do it if um, I were to implement some kind of a new uh, machine learning uh, process in a company that's going to change completely the paradigms. I would really set high goals. How did the process kind of evolve over time with this? You know, what were the steps, I guess, to achieving that goal? Did you achieve that goal? And what were the steps to getting there? Yeah. So, um, so in order to keep people interested, yeah, we actually, we did achieve the goal. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> so, uh, we, we got our cost curve down to uh, 30% from what the baseline was when we started. Um, so this is like a 70% saving, mm -hmm. but the most interesting part was that, um, we tripled, uh, the amount of jobs that we had on the platform back then. And, um, for a lot of people, this this probably doesn't sound like a lot to triple the content of jobs. But um, as I mentioned in the beginning, expert here focuses on these high-level jobs, right? So jobs above 100,000 US dollars. And um, if you look at an average page of a company um, that has 1,000 jobs, maybe 5% of them would be relevant for this uh, type of market. So um, getting to... Um, tripling the amount of jobs that we had on the platform, we actually had to increase our processing power. So the, the amount of jobs that we pushed through the platform, the, we call it assembly line. Um, so if the team used to be able to do like manually about 50, maybe 60,000 jobs a month, uh, today we process close to 3 million every day. So um, you can you can like imagine the gains that we had yeah, this that's is a huge difference yeah that, that's huge yeah and so there was a significant part of the 
the workflow previously that was based on manual categorization and that's all or some portion of some large portion of that it sounds like has been replaced with uh, machine categorization yeah this is correct so this was um so we, we kind of built we kind of drew a picture of our complete uh value chain like from how a job comes to the platform every step that it needs to go through uh before it's like finished and processed to be served to a customer and we identified which are the areas that took most of the time. And I mean, it was not surprising, but the classification was like the biggest one. So that's where we started. So um, if I look at the way the team has evolved today, um, it's mostly uh, the work is now kind of quality related work. So there's very little classification going on, maybe for jobs where the model is still not very sure about the the classification that it provides. And so how many iterations of your pipeline have you gone through at this point? Did you kind of settle in on the whatever the first thing you did with the the winning consulting company uh, after you set out on this path? Or have you iterated your pipeline a few times? Um, I would say that up until, um, I mean, also including today, we are constantly um, iterating. So we started with, um, if you think about our data pipe, it, ha it had in the beginning uh, four services, uh, the four classification services. So today we have close to 30 different services that are related to these data processing steps. So not all of them are machine learning based, but I would say probably half of them are. So the way we started was that uh, the agency was like very optimistic. They were great guys based in Munich. Um, so I think the very first thing that we started was uh, like very classical support vector machine type of classification, you know, uh, bag of words. And um, it kind of worked for, I think we started with English first. Um, that's actually a good moment to mention that Expertier supports seven different languages. And uh, if we look at English, it actually, uh, we have to look at it twice because you have U.S. English and British English. And the way that those two countries write their jobs descriptions is completely, completely different. So um, it took us about a year and a half and uh, hundreds of different iterations, which I will explain exactly what this means. Um, to come to a moment where we said, okay, uh, we are happy with what we have now, uh, so let's focus on quality. Um, we focused on quality. We saw that there are some areas to improve. We saw that there are some um, opportunities to get more data. And then we said, okay, you know what, uh, so many options. So let's build a real data science department in the company. That's kind of how the whole thing evolved. But um, the iterations looked a little bit like this. So the agency built the first models. And as I said, um, we, we looked at the results. They were not very impressive, I would say. Um, I would say something in the area. So if we take, for example, function. Uh, so expert here has uh, 19 different functions for uh, a job. So stuff like sales, marketing, IT, IT production, manufacturing. Um, I think in the beginning we had like an F1 score of uh, maybe 45, so maybe 50%, um, which was not not in no way production ready. And we would look at the mistakes 
And um, there were, of course, the traditional mistakes where you would see that uh, the classifiers were not able to abstract well enough. But there were also other types of mistakes where actually the classifier did the correct job. And then once we looked at the validation, uh, the validated job, we saw that the job was initially classified wrong. Um, and we would then talk to the person that created this job and we would like try to understand why uh, why this mistake happened. And this was like one of the first eye-openers um, where we found out that people uh, have, you know, humans and stuff, uh, feelings and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 it would, something like this would happen, like a person would say, hey, you know, that day I remember uh, my girlfriend broke up with me. So I was like in such a bad mood and I didn't really, I wasn't really careful in what I was doing, right? So you'd have these type of cases. Or um, we had these quality managers and they would control the quality of the work, like random samples of people that were a little bit too junior. And um, there were a few people that were more, um, you know, they were more careful. So if you were a researcher, that's how we call the people that were classifying the jobs. So if you're a researcher, you know, okay, so today I have person A who is uh, very careful at uh, what he or she does. And tomorrow I have person B. So this kind of impacts the way I also work. So um, this is, of course, a challenge because it means that the data set that we had to work with was in no way perfect. And we actually had initially the assumption that we have these perfect data sets, mm. which was not the case. So this is kind of a extreme cold shower to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you go back and kind of clean up all your labels or did you do something else? Yeah, this was yeah, this was the initial plan to kind of uh, go through the data set, uh, take out the bad stuff. Um, we had this internal hierarchy where we knew if a person was junior or more senior, so we kind of sorted uh, stuff out there, but it still wasn't good enough. Um, so what we did back then was this was kind of this, the moment where we said, okay, um, a pure machine learning solution is not going to work out. So maybe let's think if there is a hybrid solution that we can use. So uh, a combination of a, of a classifier, um, additional um, features that we would extract from the text. So like pure text analytics. And uh, we would try to enforce the business logic in certain cases where the model fails because uh, the abstraction is too complicated. And in order for people to really understand this, we have to come back at how people like really, really read jobs. So um, if you have a traditional job description, right, and I'm trying to guess the career level of this job. So a human would normally start scanning the job description for specific keywords. Like, um, so if I'm trying to find out if a job is a senior one, um, I would look for keywords like four years of work experience, right? Or five years of work experience. But um, if, because you have different companies and different languages and different company size and different cultures in the companies, the way they write their description is very heterogeneous. It's very different. So it's really hard to reach an abstraction there. And if one person writes uh, four years of work experience, another company would write 
two to five years of work experience, or they would write <laughs> uh, five years of relevant work experience. Right, or right. yeah, you know, you you get the picture. So it's kind of a an extreme amount um, of com- complexity there when you try to classify these texts. And um, at this point, we said, okay. Um, let's do a bag of words, uh, extract, uh, no, sorry, not bag of words. Let's do uh, five grams, see what are the most um, common um, combinations of words related to the career level. Career level was very complicated. This was like the most complicated one to classify. And uh, we would then identify these, uh, so to say, key text pieces and then we would uh, expand them um, so that at the end of the day when you had your you had like an assembled model with I don't know if there is a name for it honestly so you have um, a classifier that gives some kind of prediction then you would try to additionally see if you have matched some specific um, semantic structures in the sentences you would also try to see if you have matched some um, uh, parts of the text that you extracted in a text analytics part, and uh, you would also compare a classifier on the job title and description separately. And all of this information, it will like go into one uh, big model that will then uh, use support vector machines to do like the final decision of, uh, of the classification of the job. And um, this took a lot of iterations. I would say we used to probably do per language, uh, per parameter, more than 100 iterations, uh, which means like eight languages, uh, three main parameters, oh, 24. And yeah, that's quite a lot. I think you get the picture. Uh, and you mean in terms of uh, training cycles or in terms of just the you know, versions of the model over time? Um, both. So we would, so we would, um, so we would clean up the data set where we find inconsistencies. Uh, we would retrain the models. Uh, then we would uh, extract some new uh, pieces from the text that are somehow uh, relevant for the text analytic part of the model. Uh, we would do some more iterations. Uh, we would find out, for example, that specific um, job categories are not abstracted that well. And there we will do like a very, um, very hard rule that it's enforced and it has a very high score that goes into the final model. Hmm, interesting. And how long did this did this process take uh, calendar wise? Was this, you know, over the course of a couple of years or, you know, much shorter than that? Um, so English, we kind of covered in three months. Um, so we got, I mean, we said, that just to get an understanding of what our KPI was. So we said that obviously we cannot get uh, um, a score of 100%. So uh, we would be very happy if we get something like 55 uh, or 60% of the jobs um, to be classified at least like 95% correct. So like 60% recall and 90% precision. And uh, in order to get there, it took us about three months for English, US and UK, uh, another maybe four or five months for German because there was differences in the Swiss German and the German German. And 
somewhere in beginning of 2016, we were done with French, Spanish, Italian, and uh, Dutch. Hmm. Yeah, so I would say a year and a half, close to maybe close to two years with the fine tuning afterwards. And when you look at the kind of the direction that this is all going, do you see, have you started looking at some of the deep learning based NLP models, embeddings and things like that? And do you see that changing your general approach, like taking away the need to do this hierarchical type of model with both the, you know, traditional NLP text analytics stuff and the uh, ML classifiers or do you expect that you'll always have some degree of that hanging around? Yeah, that's the good that's a very good question. So my hope is that at some at some point of time uh, we will be able to completely drop this whole text analytic and uh, business rules part. I mean it doesn't take that much time to manage them nowadays. Um, we do a lot more retraining. But um, we started a very, so deep learning was such a huge fuss in 2017. Um, so I think in June or July 2017, um, my team and I decided to kind of explore deep learning for text classification because um, like historically speaking, and if you do this whole academic reviews, uh, deep learning was always praised, you know, for text classification. So we tried quite a lot of stuff. So we tried um, very deep convolutional neural networks, uh, VDCNN. We tried uh, HDL text. Um, so it's like a high hierarchical deep learning. They got to pretty good numbers, I would say, if we look at career level, right? So out of the box, very, very little fine tuning. Uh, we got to 80% quite quickly. Um, but what really struck me, um, it was somehow by chance, one of the people from our team, Viet, he found, he found out about Fastex from Facebook. I don't know if, um, you're familiar with this one. Mm -hmm. It's a text classification framework from Facebook, uh, which you can actually train on a pre-normal computer on a desktop and Fastex really blew everything away. It was I was, we were literally not blaming our eyes. So um, on average, it outperformed all deep learning uh, frameworks we tried by two, three, maybe 4%. But the difference in the training time is, you know, for Fastex, um, training on 600,000 jobs, so 6,000 data points, 600,000 data points, um, trying to guess um, four classes for career level, uh, Fastex takes 2.5 minutes to train on a desktop and uh, VDCNN takes uh, 16 hours on a 12 gigabyte GPU. Mm, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the uh, what about the sample efficiency? Were there any marked differences in the amount of data you needed to provide the different models? Well, when it comes to data, we kind of decided to go all in because we have uh, millions of uh, hand classified samples. So the really, really the point was okay, just try to throw in everything in that we know that it's good, uh, and see what comes out. Okay. So with with regards to this, there were not a lot of problems. Um, there is one specific problem where we are kind of experimenting right now uh, with, I learned something from your show, the zero shot machine learning. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So um, we have a specific case where we have very few um, examples uh, present as a data set. So we are kind of playing around with this one. I think there is a very interesting paper from 2017. Um, but yeah, I mean, deep, deep learning was not the cure for us, to be honest. So uh, we decided to stick to fast text. So the, the fast text classifier... Uh, are you currently using that in production and and how much of all of the other stuff that you had, you know, did it replace or do you see it replacing? So we, yeah, we, we do use it in production. Um, it's so as, as I said, we have this um, this one model that kind of takes the input from um, all of the other um, predictors. And FastX is also one that gives like an additional um an additional score there for jobs where we are not sure of um, how the general classification would perform. And I would really like to like um, use it completely. Uh, but I think that from a risk perspective, I would still like to stick to this kind of um, ensembled solution that we have for a while. Because as I said, we invested a lot of time in creating this whole business logic and uh, text analytic rules. Uh, I wouldn't throw them, on, throw them out immediately. But looking at the future, um, if I'm going to do retrainings, I would definitely focus the energy on the fast text part because I think that this really works very well for jobs. I don't know what it is exactly. Um, maybe it's the length of the text. Um, jobs kind of have on average 2,000 characters. So maybe that's why fast text uh, works very well. Maybe because of the number of features that it can work with. Um, but um, I think we'll keep the original model for a while still. Yeah. But if I can give a tip to anyone who starts into text classification, it would be to look into fast text. It's uh, really amazing. It's really amazing. So there was recently uh, a post by uh, it was Jeremy Howard and Seb Gruber uh, mm -hmm. talking about some work that they were doing in applying transfer learning to NLP. I forget what models they use, but have, have you come across that by any chance? Yeah, um, I'm just looking for one of the last papers that I um, decided to use recently. Yeah, it's called structural something in the area of structural sentence similarity estimation for short text. I think this is kind of related to uh, transfer learning. And then there was uh, fast AI. I think they also have. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, we're probably AI. thinking about the same the same yeah. one. Jeremy Howard and Sebastian Ruder. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So so once I wrote it, I was like, wow, wow. This is we gotta try it out. It's in our uh, it's in our Jira uh, system. It's prioritized. So the moment the team gets a little bit of air, uh, they're trying it. They're going to try it out because uh, there is only this graph. It's amazing. It's wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like a big part of your, I don't know if workflow is the right word, but a big part of the, the way you approach this problem and kind of staying ahead of the curve is tracking the, the academic research and trying stuff out as you, as you come across stuff that looks interesting. Yeah, that's, this is uh, absolutely correct. Um, we cannot try to see what comes out in the space. It's really hard to, um, to really monitor everything. So um, 
I'm just trying to get bits and pieces from everywhere and then try occasionally stuff out that looks promising. I mean, it's really important to kind of see what kind of um, data sets uh, are used in the papers because like from my experience, from what I saw in the deep learning part um, that we did all these tests with, um, if someone is interested, there is a very long presentation on my LinkedIn profile uh, with all of the tests that we did. So these papers, right, they use, um, the academic papers, they use like very um, nicely balanced data sets. Um, and they don't necessarily um, have a touch to reality, like, right? So the way we work is the data sets that we have are like very unbalanced and uh, they need a lot of fine tuning. So um, when I see these benchmarks of the deep learning models to other models in the papers, it looks very promising, but whilst you try it on your own data, uh, the picture is completely different. So I still try to be like innovative, try stuff out whenever we have time, <clears throat> but we also try to stick to the kind of established things uh, like fast text, for example. Is the way you've addressed the imbalanced nature of your data set, is there anything different that you do there beyond the general stuff that we've talked about, the, you know, applying the business rules and things like that? Um, so for the deep learning part, uh, we tried, uh, of course, oversampling. Um, it's, so we, we did like tests with and without oversampling. Uh, it's especially relevant for uh, specific uh, classifications um, where, you know, uh, you don't have a lot of jobs in the C-level uh, position, right? So um, you probably have like 1,000 data points instead of 1 million, which would be in the lower career levels. Um, so the way what we tried out and it worked out quite well was um, to do, to combine classes. Uh, probably there is some uh, term for this in the uh, academic world, but we would kind of keep lower classes where we had a lot of data points um, in one classifier, right? So you have class one, class two, class three, and then class four would be um, a combined of uh, the classes where we had very little data. So this classifier would do like the first, um, the first decision, you know, is it one, two, three, or four? And four could be then, uh, class four could be then additional three more classes. And there, for example, we find out that FastX really captured very well this differentiation on the high classes uh, that the deep learning model did not abstract, uh, was not able to abstract. Hmm. So this is kind of my experience on the imbalanced data sets. Very cool. Any other, any other experiences that you'd like to share? Oh, yeah. Um, so for people that are kind of rolling out uh, machine learning services in the organization, um, I have a, a few tips. Um, so first of all, uh, as I said, you know, do some uh, big and bold goals, like double something or triple something, so that you can um, kind of try to challenge the status quo that you have in your organization. Um, but at the same time, you have to be, of course, able to balance uh, by not setting the project scope too large, because if you set the project scope too large, then uh, you have a lot of unknown factors and uh, you would have a too optimistic roadmap. And uh, especially if you learn working in a large company, you know, politics can be kind of a, a bummer for data scientists because it tend to over promise. Then uh, when once you are kind of ready to roll out your solution, uh, my suggestion would be to kind of identify the people in your team that are um, 
the very, you know, motivated, curious people that are interested in trying new stuff out and first play it out with them a little bit. And after that, roll it out to the whole organization. So I would use this kind of small core team to improve the solution as much as I can. And I would then roll it out into the whole organization because um, people are generally very skeptic by nature. We had this kind of experience. So you you give this amazing solution, right? And uh, the person sa- sees that it kind of automates uh, his or her job, so it helps him or her a lot. And the first thing that they try to find out is why it cannot work or why or how it is wrong, right? So they don't focus on kind of improving the solution, but they kind of focus on how to convince you that this is never going to work out. And this was um, a big fight in the organization. So um, this was a very kind of interesting experience. And um, be careful with this like first implementations um, because if you if you kind of fail there, then uh, you're going to have um, the general team will have some kind of skepsis for the whole project and it's uh, hard to get away from it. So my suggestion would be to rather release something once you're like very sure uh, that it's working well instead of kind of releasing too early and um, not uh, being good enough. And uh, with regards to if you're like starting with machine learning, um, the cloud providers, from my perspective, are great. So um, these are industry leaders, and um, we see this kind of trend of uh, having off-the-shelf solutions for machine learning. So from my perspective, this is going to be the future. And I already, I mean, I talk a lot about it um, when I'm at conferences and people tend to not believe me, but I think that in a few years we are going to have a lot more solutions like drag and drop your data and uh, we'll figure it out for you. And here's an API, you know, and uh, just, you know, send us everything that you want on this API and we'll give you back the result. Mm-hmm. This is the way I think uh, data science at always um, developing. Well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thank you, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Alexander or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 161. If you didn't hit pause and nominate us for the Podcast People's Choice Awards at the beginning of the show, I'd like to encourage you to jump over to twimlai.com slash nominate right now and send us your love and your vote. As always, Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.